0: The 630 Ched Afternoon News, brought to you by California Closets, for the love of home. Welcome back to the program, our second hour of this, a Thursday edition of the 630 Chat Afternoon News. Winger in for J. Lynn Nye. The conversation on photo radar continuing on our Facebook page. Lots of you commenting on it, so we'll check back. We'll circle back, as Jaylen likes to say, and take a look at that later on in the show. Right now, though, uh, the U of A will become the new guardian of Canada's oldest and coldest climate records when the country's largest collection of ice cores arrives sometime in the next year. Um... Here, they'll form the foundation for a new national facility open to researchers. Uh, researchers Joining us now, Dr. Martin Sharp, I love this title, uh, uh, Glaciologist, uh, Department of Earth and Atmospheric Sciences, University of Alberta. Uh, good afternoon, Dr. Sharp. Yeah, good afternoon. Uh, you know what, I just, uh, that's a great title, can I just tell you that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, all right. <laughs> Perhaps you can uh, literally dummy it down for me. What is this collection exactly and what is its significance for researchers?
1: Okay, so what it is is a collection of ice cores that were drilled from ice caps, mainly in the Canadian Arctic Islands, but also from Canada's highest mountain, Mount Logan in the Yukon, at various times over the last 50 years by researchers at the Geological Survey of Canada in Ottawa um sometimes in in collaboration with university researchers and these ice cores go back in time um in many cases to the last glaciation so the time when Canada was completely overrun by ice um more than 10,000 years ago and they provide us with high res- high resolution records of of climate change uh during the period since then uh, along with information about things like the deposition of contaminants, the history of volcanic eruptions, uh, dust deposition, forest fire burning products, all, all these kinds of things uh, recorded in the in the ice, as, as well as uh, the changes in the temperature and the snowfall over these regions during and, that period.
0: And this collection goes back to the 60s?
1: Uh, so the earliest drilling in Canada was done in the 60s, that's right, yeah.
0: So let me ask a dumb question. It's sort of my job around here. Wouldn't we have derived all the information we need to derive from those cores in in since 1960?
1: Well, I think we, we certainly derived a lot of information from those cores. Um, but one of the things that's happened during the period that people have been collecting them is that the... Um, The quality of analytical instruments that's available to work on this kind of material has been improving consistently, and there are types of analyses that we can do now that you couldn't even have thought about doing 40 years ago. And you can do them on smaller samples now than you could have done 40 years ago, so you can see things at much higher resolution. In the past, say, you might have been working at, say, 30 to 50 years resolution at best, and now you can probably be down to to a couple of years or maybe even months in some cases.
2: I was just very fortunate to return um, from Resolute Bay, Nunavut, in the Arctic, and I got to meet with some of the researchers up there who are doing research on climate change in the Arctic. They, too, are drilling ice cores, so I think that's why I was most excited to have you on. Um, they, they said there for their continental shelf program, they get right. about 200 applicants a year um, because it is such a fascinating place. I'm hoping that you can kind of explain why the Arctic is like this petri dish um, for climate change and why it's so significant.
1: Well, in terms of um, using ice cores to look at climate change, it's as simple as That's where the ice is, really, um, and so that if you want ice cores, that's where you have to go to collect them. But the Arctic is is a really prime place to be studying climate change at the moment because the climate is changing really rapidly um, over the last couple of decades. Um, summers are getting much warmer. On the ice, melt is increasing in rate dramatically. Um, snowfall really isn't doing very much to compensate for that. And we're seeing big changes in the sea ice on the Arctic Ocean as well, which affects, um, say, the production of, of aerosol from the ocean, which finds its way into the ice cores and provides us with a basis for studying how, how sea ice has fluctuated in the past. And this year we have really very low sea level uh, sea ice concentrations in the Arctic at the moment and unprecedentedly warm conditions. Um, based on the comparison with the historical record, So it's it's a place where there's a lot happening. And I'll just give you one example. Uh, one of the sites that was first to be cored in the Canadian Arctic was Mian Island in the 1960s. And after that core was collected, well, when that core was collected, they built a hut on the ice cap to, to house the people working on the drilling. And that hut was eventually buried by snowfall. They built another one on top of it. And that was buried by snowfall. So They built another one on top of it. Um, and that took about 40 years to do that. And the last five years, uh, all of that snow was melted and the three huts were all exposed and blew over. So we lost about 50 years worth of snowfall in less than three years. Wow.
0: So I, I'm curious, is this a coup for the University of Alberta to have this, or is this a last resort for the people who have it now in Ottawa?
1: Well, I think in Ottawa they they, they made decisions within, within um, Natural Resources Canada about what their priorities were going to be going forward and decided that ice coring wasn't an area they wanted to put resources so they decided to make the collection available to um to to others who might want to continue to work on them and at the university of alberta we have probably the largest collection of people in the country who've actually got previous experience working on ice cores plus we have some of the best laboratories for doing this kind of analysis anywhere in canada so it seemed a logical place for us to bring them and those of us who are involved in the project are certainly very enthusiastic about the opportunities that it presents, so we don't see it as a last resort, we see it as a big chance to to open up a new area of science doing things on these materials that haven't been done before.
2: Well, and when you have this collection in front of you, I guess the best part is you can compare them, and that's the, the difference of gathering these through the years. Well, with, with a title like the, a glaciologist, I feel like you would be able to, I, I don't know if I'm putting you on the spot, but I found when I spoke with researchers in the Arctic, none of them were quick to point a finger at global warming. A lot of them were saying climate cycle. Is that, is, is that what you're, you're well, hoping to so, identify?
1: Yeah, so there have been natural variations in climate ever since we had an atmosphere, and many of those natural variations are going to continue uh, regardless what the impact of, of human activity is on, on the climate system. But I think most um, one has to be cautious because we only have relatively short-term records um, of human influence on climate. I think there's a very large part of the climate community who who believes that we are now seeing a very clear fingerprint of of human activity in the climate changes that are going on, particularly in the polar regions.
0: You you mentioned the expertise that already exists at the University of Alberta for studying these kinds of uh, uh, this kind of collection. Will this attract more of that kind of talent to the U, U of A?
1: I think it will attract some to the U of A, but one, one of um, the sort of The key pieces of the strategy we've developed um, around building this facility is that we want it to be an open access facility um, that anybody from Canada or anywhere else in the world is interested can come to to work on these materials if they've got new ideas to contribute to the information that we can extract from them. And the second thing that we want to do is we want to develop a a digital database which includes all the information that we have about any of these cores. Um, and that should also be publicly available in, in a way that it isn't at the moment. So, so we can make full use of the historical information that's been collected about them as well.
0: You mentioned uh, this new facility, so can you talk about that a little bit? Uh, what's the cost? When will it be ready? Uh, what's involved in building a facility like uh, you're suggesting?
1: Okay, so the timescale is that uh, construction is supposed to start, I think, next month. And the target is to be finished probably in October or November, of this year with the actual construction, and then we'll probably need a period of testing uh, to make sure everything runs stably before we can move the cores here. So I'm hoping we'll have the cores here late this year or early next year, um, and then soon after that start to get them in a state where they're ready for people to 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 use for research purposes. Now, what the facility is is really three three distinct spaces. One would be a storage freezer. Um, at about minus 36 degrees Celsius, where the cores will be kept in a frozen state. And the goal will simply be to house them in that space. The second one is a slightly warmer um, freezer, which is used for working on the cores. So um, we plan to do a a consistent set of characterizations on each core that we uh, bring into the collection so that we have some baseline information, which is the same for every core piece that we have. We plan to record these things photographically at every stage in which they're used. Um, and so all that work needs to be done in a cold room, as does um, the physical cutting of, of samples from cores uh, to be taken away to labs for other kinds of analysis. And then the third one is a is a warm space, normal room temperature, where we'll have a series of analytical instruments that allow us to make measurements that we want to make on every core. So these will be measurements that allow us to reconstruct the temperature history of the atmosphere at the coring site, to identify where we might find ash layers from volcanic eruptions in the core, which we can then we can identify which eruption they relate to and use that to put an age on the ice, this kind of thing. So uh, there'll be quite a bit of basic work that's done on every core, and, and then samples that are cut for specific um, purposes that need to go to more specialized analytical labs uh, and those will be done in those latter two working spaces.
2: If, if in order to work on the ice cores, uh, they need to be in these these freezers, are you wearing like extreme Arctic gear?
1: Yep. So when you're working on those, you wear normal um, cold weather clothing, uh, pants and uh, jacket and gloves, and you may well also wear, fa- depending on what you're doing with the core, you may wear face masks to avoid breathing on the um, b- breathing on the uh, cores mm. as well. Is
0: there another facility like this, or is this a -a uh... one-of-a-kind...?
1: This would be the only facility like this in Canada. Um, The best analogue would be the U.S. National Ice Coal Facility in Denver, which is run by the U.S. Geological Survey. Uh, That's a much bigger facility than we're talking about because they have a lot more material, uh, largely because they're actively involved in deep drilling in Antarctica and Greenland, where the the holes may be uh, several kilometers deep, whereas most of the course in the Canadian Arctic. We're talking about uh, holes being a few hundred meters deep.
0: Good stuff. Well, you must be uh, you must be like a kid before Christmas waiting for this thing to open.
1: Yeah, we're certainly looking forward to it. It's going to be a lot of work, but uh, I think it'll be worth it in the end.
0: Sounds like it. Uh, Dr. Sharp, appreciate your time this afternoon. Thanks for uh, thanks for educating us all on uh, ice core.
1: You're very welcome. All right.
0: Take care. Bye. Bye. That was uh, Dr. Martin Sharp, a glaciologist, Department of Earth and Atmospheric Sciences, University of Alberta. Did you know there was such a thing as a glaciologist?
2: I now know that. (laughs) And I think that is probably one of the best titles I've ever heard.
0: Yeah, he wasn't as impressed with it as I was.
2: Uh, Yeah, well, he's used to it.
0: I guess he is. (laughs) Uh, All right, we'll take a quick break. Uh, When we come back, uh, perhaps we'll circle back to this uh, photo radar, or maybe uh, we'll take a look at uh, an award show and not the, uh, what's coming up? Is it the Oscars? Yes. There's a great award show that's already happened that you probably don't know about. Welcome back to the program. Uh, we, we just got off the phone uh, with uh, one of those big brains over at the University of Alberta, uh, Dr. Martin Sharp, talking. Uh, he's a glaciologist, Winger. He's a sure glaciologist. Is. Um, we were laughing about whether or not if he goes to a cocktail party and somebody hands him a drink, does he look at those ice cubes and just think, "Ah, oh, the stories they could tell." <laughs> uh, somebody texted in, "Tree hugger, bendy facts, agenda is clear." <laughs> not to me it isn't what <laughs> what?
2: Okay, we need to get him back on on the phone cuz we missed that like, <laughs> your agenda.
0: Uh, I'm not sure what's going on. Hey, uh mentioned that uh, an award show just took uh, place. Didn't even know this existed, uh, but apparently it's been going it's been going on for years. It's it's a, a flamboyant affair. Uh it's held by the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Uh, attendees, rent taxes uh, get uh, beautiful gowns and they all show up uh, to have uh, to witness giant pigs um, called teddies be presented. Now, the teddy is named for Ted Witherell. Uh, he's a former head of the Canadian Labor Relations Board and he racked up apparently $150,000 in meal expenses. So, the awards celebrate the best of the worst in government waste. And, and just as an aside, because I don't want to run out of time, not to mention this they don't waste money getting new trophies every year. And if you see the picture, the trophies are massive. They're, they're, they're <laughs> Picture a big plastic piggy bank. They're that size, only they look to be made of gold or bronze. But they don't buy new ones every year because no one ever shows up to get their <laughs> award. <laughs> so they're able to recycle, I love, reuse. I love it. Yeah. Uh, but here are some of the winners uh, from this. Uh, Canada's 350-strong delegation to the uh, COP21 conference in Paris. Now, that was the climate change That's what made me think of it, talking to the uh, glaciologist. Now, a lot did get done at that, uh, they will uh, readily admit. But the uh, 2015 United Nations Climate Change Conference um, included countries from all over the world, but Canada sent 350 delegates. In fact, uh, our premier went to that one. um, Compared to, say, 124 and 96 sent by the United States and the United Kingdom, respectively, uh, that was also where I think uh, our new prime minister stated, Canada is back. I'll <laughs> say. And they brought everybody who Every, wanted to go.
2: <laughs> everybody. Yeah, who's going to pass up a party in Paris? Well, Come no
0: on. kidding. I'm surprised I wasn't invited. Uh, how about this? This was a nominee but didn't win. The Canadian High Commission in London. Don't even know what they do. But I'll tell you, one of the things they do, they throw big parties. They threw a $200,000 party, uh, including spending $10,000 to ship a BC wine in and $5,000 to have four Mounties show up in Red Surge. So well done. Uh, Bombardier was handed a Lifetime Achievement Award. I almost shouldn't have to keep telling the story. That's just sort of funny. It's in the news again right now that Bombardier wants to be bailed out. Um, Now, Bombardia they say that over the years, since 1966, the federal government and various different federal governments have given the company $3.8 billion. And while the awards were being handed out, they were actually seeking another billion dollars. So a lifetime achievement. With a B. Billion. Yeah. yeah. Billion. Um, I'm saving the best for last. Thunder Bay Biomass Plant was a nominee. See, they'll, they'll look at anything at any level. It can be city, province, country. Um, Instead of racking up, now, you know, people are really tuned into the environment these days. So any kind of project that involves green gets the green light. So this one did. And what this does is they took, I think, a coal, uh, yeah, Thunder Bay Generating Station, a former coal plant. They converted it to burn biomass. Now, that's a good thing.
2: Right, yes.
0: Uh, but, a bit of a glitch. Uh, due to a technical oversight, it can only burn biomass that's imported from Norway.
2: <laughs> <laughs> how do you figure that I out? I don't
0: know. That's an awkward first day. Hey, why isn't this burning? Oh, where is it from? Um,
2: how, no, but how do you I figure that okay Okay, uh, hey, Norwegians, can you send I us? I don't, yeah. Okay.
0: I don't know the answer to that. But that's why I am personally not involved in designing biomass plants. Another nominee, the decorating of Saskatoon's bridge, Saskatoon's 100-year-old traffic bridge, um, they decorated it for $462,000 with LED lights like we did here uh, in uh, Edmonton. The only difference being that the bridge was already uh, scheduled for demolishment. So... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. They put $462,000 of lights on the bridge and then they got rid of it. Uh, My favorite, and I know I'm over time, Matt, I'm sorry, uh, PEI's Uplifting Tourist Guide was a winner. Uh, The government of PEI already printed 180,000 copies of its annual tourism guide uh, before someone noticed the cover appeared to feature a man lounging in a beach chair with a visible erection. Oh, my Oh, yeah. But you know what? Here's what makes this one a little different than the others. Uh, They went ahead and used man. Anyway, so not really a
2: waste of money, but... No, that's money well spent. Yeah, I would say so.
0: The 630 Ched Afternoon News, brought to you by California Closets, for the love of home. Welcome back to the, uh, where are we at? The second half of the second hour of the 6.30 Ched Afternoon News. Uh, By the way, should mention uh, coming up at 6, Inside Sports as always. But the City Ford Face-Off show, I'm going to guess, starts at 7 o'clock. Uh, as the uh, Edmonton Oilers take on the LA Kings in LA. Uh, Now listen to this, excited for our next uh, guest. His name's Matt, he's a blogger. Now he likes to talk about marriage, he likes to talk about relationships and divorce, but lately he's been talking about really bad husbands in a series of posts whose title I can't say on AM radio. It's a series of open letters to really uh, bad husbands, we'll say. You can read the post for yourself at his website, MustBeThisTallToRide.com, and quite frankly, if you're a husband, I really recommend that you do. Matt joins us now. Hey, Matt.
3: Andrew, how are you doing, sir? Pretty good, my right?
0: friend. Uh, uh, yeah, Oh, yeah, we got Winger here as well. Uh, Matt, I uh, let me just start by saying I really enjoyed reading and, and your posts, your blog, and oftentimes, in preparation for talking to somebody like yourself, a guest, you sort of scan a little bit, you kind of do the Coles notes of it, and and hope the guest will fill in the blanks, but I got hooked. I read them all. There's several volumes to this. Really good writing.
3: Well, thank you. I'm not sure how good it is, but uh, the contact is resonating with a handful of people out there. It's, uh, it's pretty flattering. Thank you.
0: Yeah, no. Nope. Well, so let's start with that. Let's talk about what made you write this blog. Maybe give us an oversight for those who haven't read it yet, uh, what it's about well, and and why you wrote it and what the feedback's been.
3: I understand we don't have all night, so I don't want to take up too much of your time talking about me personally, but that's really where it began. Um, a few years ago, my wife and I were divorced, and I didn't like it. That that wasn't something that I wanted to do. Um, it was a hard time, and I, I was a child of divorce, and it's just a subject that really mattered to me. So, uh, you know, I was talking to a, a lady therapist on the phone one night. I've never talked to any therapist before. It was the first time, and uh, she encouraged me to write. And uh, I was a newspaper reporter in a previous life, so I, I didn't want to write for myself in a notebook. Um, so I started putting it out there, and I started telling stories about dealing with those early days. And it was much different then. It was just like a sad, angry guy writing. And and now it's sort of organically morphed into something else. Um, I sort of accidentally realized that telling the stories were helping people, people that were feeling all the same things and dealing with all the same things. And it turns out there are millions of people struggling in their relationships all the time. So. I have a a somewhat irreverent and casual way of discussing, I think, the everyman marriage that that a lot of people can identify with, and uh, I didn't know it at the time. I just found out through thousands of people saying so in return.
0: Yeah, the the average man is—you just hit the nail on the head. I consider myself as well to be an average man, and as I say, uh, I I read the first few lines of the first volume and then exited— because you nailed me right between the eyes and I thought Oh, uh, this guy actually is talking about me and then went back again and to give you an idea uh what I had read was uh that you had been and you're not uh, you don't purport to be a relationship expert or anything else you're just an average guy uh, but you Bye had yes, yeah and you had uh, written about well you know a guy has an attitude for example that listen I pay the bills I put a roof over your head I take care of all the big stuff and you you know that that's your way of showing your wife that you love her and um, I started reading this going yeah I've actually said those words to my wife that hey I don't know what the heck you're complaining you know know I don't want to watch the movie with you but I paid the mortgage again last month (laughs) you know it's a lot of that isn't it a lot of just common sense kind of talk about maybe connecting at a different level with your wife
3: I, I didn't know how to say it three years ago when I wrote that first post that you're, that you're describing, um, but I think I know how to say it today, and that is good men can be bad husbands in the same way that good men can be bad at electrical wiring or um, you know salsa dancing or fixing a car. Um, it's a skill to be good at marriage, and a lot of men aren't good at it, and I, I'm not trying to punish anybody for it either, but I see... I see two adults that are pretty smart most of the time and they're pretty good people and they're not being duped nobody's got a gun to their head and they get married and they want to they invite a bunch of people and they spend 30 grand on it and they're excited to be married and they absolutely don't think five to ten years from now they're going to get divorced and then half the time maybe more everybody gets divorced and it's like nobody can figure out why and i don't think enough people are talking about it frankly and it's because of, of these little things that happen every day, these little itty-bitty fights that nobody even thinks twice about. Sometimes it's not a fight. Sometimes it's what you said. Your, your wife wants to watch a romantic comedy with you, and you're like, no, I'm going to you know, watch the soccer game or whatever. And I don't know. If that's, that's, what a, that's what a marriage looks like. That's what real marriages look like, and they end more than half the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, people need to figure it out.
2: Okay, Matt, so here's what really resonated uh, with me. And as a woman, and I'm, I'm going to just say that, what really impressed me is that you come out and say... I was a crappy husband, and I, what I, I just kept thinking is nobody ever takes the blame when a, a relationship starts crumbling. You want to point fingers, and I think, and I'm, I'm not saying if we don't have, I, I would search for a woman to come on and say the same thing, because I know we're going to get males texting, <laughs> and look at her. She wants someone to blame the men, um, but I found, how I came across you was I found an article that you had written that said, my wife left me because I left my, my dishes by the sink. And and you were oversimplifying. It was just one little thing that drove her nuts. And year after year, day after day, she kept asking you to just put it in the dishwasher or or clean them, and you wouldn't do it because you didn't see it as a big problem. And can you just talk about that process of realizing those little mistakes? Because I'm sure your wife is looking at herself, too, or your ex-wife, rather, and she's saying, you know what, I probably could have done a couple little things differently.
3: Yeah, and and two things, if I may. Um, I do not blame men. I simply ask men to raise their hands and take responsibility for the parts that they're responsible for. And that's what I focus on. I absolutely am certain there's a lot of wives not quite getting it right either. I just don't think it's my place to point fingers at them. And I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna write a bunch of stories about my ex-wife and talk about how she ruined everything. That's, that's not what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna, I feel strongly that if I'd done a great job, which we should all aspire to and everything, I've done a great job in my marriage. I don't think I'd be divorced today. It's that simple, and I think it's true for most people. Um, The post is called, She Divorced Me Because I Left Dishes by the and A lot of people got really upset because they thought that was a really petty thing that my wife would leave me over a dish. And Clarification, she didn't leave me because of dishes. It was just a metaphor that I thought everybody would understand. I thought almost everybody would be able to identify with the thing you do that you don't think is a big deal that your partner does think it's a big deal, and it, it's, it's, it doesn't have to be a husband-wife thing. Anybody can do anything, and it matters to someone else, but it doesn't matter to them. And when we deny them their right to care about it, it it's bad. It damages your relationship, and that's fine if you want to do it with coworkers and your buddy or you know somebody you're never going to see again, but when you do it with the person who shares resources with you and raises children with you and you know, shares beds and homes, it gets bad. You do that long enough, and it
0: goes away. You know, man, I want to. I want to actually put it another way, and, t- and tell me if you agree. There was a, a guest we had on the show. It's got to be years ago now, and, and it was a guy who'd written a book on how to win the lottery. and And I read the book, and and I've never won the lottery, but I'll, I'll tell you what, I read the book, and I used some of the tips that he gave in the book, and since using those tips, I win small prizes far more often than I used to. And and I look at your blog almost the same way. It's not a list of what you have to do. It's not a a commandment of how a a perfect marriage looks. But as you read your experiences and you relate them to your own, you you pick, at least I did, little items where you say, okay, you know what? That's a really simple change that I could make. I just never thought of it before. I don't have to do them all. But if I pick one or two and make my wife a little happier, um, everybody's happy.
3: I mean, that's something that makes a lot of sense to me. I don't, um, again, for the record, I have no idea what a perfect marriage looks like. And I don't know that if I'm ever married again that I'm going to get it right necessarily. I'm just going to try hard. Uh, I'm going go to go in much better prepared mentally and emotionally to, to deal with what marriage takes to succeed. Um, but I know what it looks like when it's bad. And, and, and I also, and again, ex wife's wonderful. Get along famously. Not best friends or anything but you know we get along really well she's a really good person and i married her on purpose i wasn't you know delusional or anything I, I made a pretty solid choice and then i just sort of went back and started remembering all the things that happened and um
2: did we lose you are you still there
3: i'm so sorry guys
2: oh that's all right
3: and i forgive me and i you know, when you combine that with, with the books you read um, about relationships and about marriages, and you start to see all these universal themes and you can apply it to your own life, you see all, all these little places where you made missteps. You made mistakes that you didn't know were mistakes. You, you realize you hurt someone, and you had no idea. And you might even have defended it afterwards because you didn't want to apologize for something you didn't, you didn't do on purpose. We do it all the time. We get in a fight, and, you know, you hurt their feelings, and they want you to apologize. But I'm not sorry because I didn't do anything wrong. And then, you know, you look back five years later and you're like, wow, I I did something wrong. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's kind of what happened. And I'm I'm confident that I am an average enough human being that if I tell my stories honestly, if I get the details right, a lot of people are going to identify these little common denominators in their relationships. And, you know, it doesn't matter what gender. It doesn't matter what sexual orientation couples are. It doesn't matter how old they are. I get thousands of people saying, thank you for doing this because you're sort of capturing this element of my relationship. And I, and I see it a little different now. And frankly, I don't even know how that happened. But maybe there's just not enough people telling the truth about what their real lives look like.
2: Well, that's why that's why I said I, I had to have you on because people aren't this honest. They're not willing to look inside. Full disclosure, you're in the U.S. I came across uh, one of your blog posts on my Facebook page, and I told you this when I first reached out. It was so crazy to me. I found you, and the same day I had a family member send me one of your blog posts. She's from the west coast of Canada. I had one of my best friends on the east coast of Canada say, I just found this guy, and I think he's going to save my relationship. And I, I just found it fascinating that all of these women are finding you at the same time. And I'm curious, when you say you're hearing from people, do you find you're, you get a lot of females saying, I'm going to show this to my husband so that he's a better husband? Do you, and do you find just as many men contacting you saying, wow, for the first time I'm, I'm looking at myself in the mirror?
3: Sometimes. I, 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 certainly, I certainly have a higher percentage, I think, of female readers. I have no way of knowing for sure. Um, I have more male readers then engage with the content. And by engage, I mean leave blog comments and interact with me, things like that. So, it, and, and I can understand how the, the husband taking responsibility for his failed marriage appeals to wives upset with, with their relationships in a way that um, still married husbands might be a little defensive about it. And I certainly understand how a husband might feel if his wife or her girlfriend approached him and said, hey, look at this guy. You know, you do all these bad things too. Um, I, I'm divorced. I'm 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 batting 0 for 1 in marriage, <laughs> and uh, I absolutely should not be held up as some example of how to be married. And I'm I'm, I'm not doing that.
0: No, because you're not. And and, and I have to say again because I know some men listening will think that's not for me or I don't need to be told to ha- to be how to be a good husband. But I want to emphasize again. It doesn't read like that. It, it's a, it's funny, it's informative, and it's hard to put down. And when I first, honestly, went to the website and saw how many volumes there were, I thought, ugh, I don't have time to read all of this. But it was like a great book. I couldn't stop reading it. And part of what I liked about it, it wasn't theoretical. It wasn't, you know, here's what the statistics say about marriage or anything like that. It was just this guy, you, Matt, saying... This is what I did, and this is what happened. And as you read it, you go, God, I do all of those things. I do a lot of those things, and I've never really thought about it. We, my wife and I stopped no. talking about it years ago. But, it, but that doesn't mean it's not too late for me to change some of those, make some adjustments. I have a good marriage, but I think I could have a better one. And, I, and that's what I got no. out of the read.
3: Thank you. And, I'm, and first of all, I'm so glad that, that you are married, and Kelsey had mentioned that earlier. Um, and it's wonderful, and I do find a lot of people that, that sort of use, use it as motivation to, to work a little harder. Um, I get a lot of really, really fantastic feedback. and I can't even begin to explain how flattering it is to, to hear you describe you know, the, the post in that way. Um, that, the book is, it is something that I intend to write. It's probably 50% finished, and because I'm me and, and a little bit disorganized, um, it's, it's not done, and it should be. <laughs> But um, that book with that title, with the bad word in it, is, yeah. is, is going to hopefully come out someday, and hopefully soon, you know, hopefully in the next 12 to
0: 18 months. Hey, the uh, the uh, guy who keeps I'm leaving dead. his dishes by the sink isn't organized enough to get his book finished. <laughs> <laughs> right, indeed. Uh, I do want to ask, before I let you go, if people want to read this, uh, go to Must Be This Tall to Write. I'm assuming that's a metaphor for something.
3: Yes. You know what? It's funny, and it's... it's I. It sort of accidentally works today um when i first got divorced i had this irreverent idea in my head where i was going to tell all these you know first person 30 something single dad stories um because I do have one young child and you know going out and trying to date and i, I sort of saw the the humor and the dysfunction and the irony of all of it and I, I thought i could tell it um and that's what it was supposed to be this sort of funny and i don't know rough around the edges storytelling of a newly single guy who's all messed up and, and trying to figure it out and it, it accidentally became something else but while I was trying to date and stuff I'm not very tall I'm five foot nine and uh, if you've ever been on my dating site and I certainly hope you have not, <laughs> women love tall strapping men and they, yeah. you know what? I'm not um, I'm a, a nice you know maybe maybe seven on a good day um, <laughs> and if, you know decide for yourself. Uh, you know, women wouldn't—they'd they, be five foot one, and they're like, you know, I need him to be six two or taller. <laughs> I was sort of—I was like, fine, you know what? And I was like, must be this tall to ride. Just kind of worked for me, and and that's that's where that went. And now it's really become a metaphor, not about self-flagellation, but but more about being good enough and a and a more—I uh, don't know what the word is—authentic inner way, something that, uh, that matters a little bit more than, than superficial things, um, because I really care about that stuff. I really do talk about striving to be the best possible human being you can be um, in, in all areas of life, not just your, your relationships. And
0: Well, Matt, it reads like that. I loved it. Um, I can't wait for the book to come out. And when it does, we'll have to get you back on the show again and talk. We're out of time now, though. Appreciate your time this afternoon, Matt. Thanks so much.
3: You guys were wonderful. Thank you very much. Have a great day.
0: You too. Well, uh Kelsey Win Garrick, uh, many of our listeners are wanting to know uh, what was that blog again it 's uh must be this tall to must be this tall to got a bunch of people saying hey what's that uh, what 's that address what 's that address and then at the bottom of that, one text. Hey, what's the name of the book that helped you win the lottery? (laughs) I don't remember. That was back, I was with Dan back then. You were producing the show. I don't remember what the book was. It's been years. I apologize.
2: Okay, the only thing I wanted to say about Matt is all of basically what it boils everything down to. And even though we're talking about crappy husbands, it makes you look at yourself as a woman too. It's about picking your battles. You don't have to, you know, right. and in what he's saying when he's saying my wife left me because I left dishes beside the sink, there's always that one thing. I, you know, I leave my shoes in a spot that drives him nuts. And eventually after 10 years of marriage and I'm putting my shoes in the same spot where he has told me day after day, he it would mean so much if I just put them in the closet, you know, like yeah. little things like that. I know
0: it's just funny. Right. And again, it is a metaphor, but this morning as I'm reading this uh, and I'm down in the office, Carol's down there working on her computer. And I printed a bunch of stuff, and then I read more and decided, well, it was too much to print, so I'm going to, you know, just take clips so I can talk to Matt. So I took what I had printed, and I threw it in the garbage, which is underneath Carol's desk. And as I went back to my computer, I heard the big, and I'm like, what? She goes, it's recycling. And, and it was just so funny to be reading about how small little things... Yeah. Can really upset your partner, and it's not about the paper, and it's not about the fact that I'm not being green, or the, you know that I'm not making the the effort to take it upstairs and put it in the blue bag. It's the fact that she's asked me a gazillion times not to put paper in that bin because it fills up too quickly.
2: And every time you put it in there, it's just you showing that you don't care. Exactly. Right? Which is not what it, it's your action is what says that, but you're not saying like I don't care, I don't love right. you. Right. Right. By constantly doing something that jo- you know drives your your partner crazy, you're you're saying, you know, screw you.
0: I know. And I'm taking that old school attitude in my mind that, yeah, well, you know what? That paper is part of the job that puts the roof over the head of all of it. You know what I mean? Like, it's hard not to think that way. You're in deep. I know I am. Let's take a break.